Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. We're recording on January 18th, Martin Luther King Day. This is 12 days after the armed insurrection at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., which brought to the surface the full fury of an overwhelmingly white populist movement whose venerated leader is Donald Trump and which was prepared to take violent steps to satisfy his will by storming the United States Congress. It's also two days before the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who inherit two of the largest crises in the history of the United States, the COVID pandemic, which is raging in unprecedented proportions, and the crisis of democratic legitimacy that Donald Trump, his Senate enablers, and his legions of supporters have fomented. To shed light on this very murky world of ours, it is good to welcome to this episode of Then and Now, my friend and colleague, Robin Kelly, who is Distinguished Professor of History and the Gary B. Nash Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. Robin previously appeared on the show in June to talk about the legacy of racism and the principles of complicity and responsibility following the murder of George Floyd. We discussed then the notion of the banality of evil used by Hannah Arendt to describe the guilt of Nazi SS officer Adolf Eichmann in his trial in Jerusalem in 1961. Welcome back, Robin. Thank you, David. I'm, I tell you, you're the best person to have this conversation with, I have to say. It's, it's a mutual uh, admiration society. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're recording on Martin Luther King Day, um, as I said, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about um, what the memory of Dr. King summons up for you right, today. Right. Yeah, you know, I kind of been thinking about this a little bit. I mean, you know, his message was always, you know, reminding us of the imperative to fight, what he called like, the, the triplets, uh, the three triplets of evil, right? That is racism, materialism, and militarism. Um, and then to build the beloved community. Uh, and his definition is one which is really no outside. You basically, you build community intention, um, even with people that you might think of as your enemy, right? Um, but it's an interesting context because I'm reminded that, you know, King's whole experience as a leader in SCLC and civil rights movement is that he's confronting both fascist state policies in the South, in, you know, in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, but also mobs, fascist mobs in places in the same place, but also in Illinois, in Chicago. Um, not to mention the fact that, again, his childhood experience in Germany with his dad uh, was, you know, during the period of, of Hitler's reign. And that's where he got his name Martin, from uh, Martin Luther, and his father changed his name as well. But what was really striking about thinking about the way in which someone like Dr. King uh, faces um, both fascist policies and fascist violence is the fact that he faced it under a liberal national 
regime that that you know one of the most liberal federal governments since Roosevelt's New Deal state. I mean, this is the regime in the De- Democratic Party, which you know sought to make um, compromise with civil rights movement and was a source of King's disappointment. I mean, this is a regime that that you know, of course, King criticized. It waged war over and covert Vietnam, Dominican Republic, uh, Indonesia, Brazil, Portuguese Africa, Portugal's African colonies. Um, it is one that even of even the Republican regime under Eisenhower was considered pretty um liberal, right? And King fought for and lived through the implementation of civil rights legislation uh, that you know he believed would make a difference, but ultimately uh, didn't, and had come to see that this legislation couldn't resolve the problems of militarism and materialism by which he meant capitalism. Uh, and of course, what did it do? It put him in direct conflict with the great society. Uh, and that's very different from the moment that we just came out of uh, with the extreme right-wing regime, but it's much closer to the moment we're about to enter. And that is how do we you know, deal with some of these questions in the face of the Biden-Harris uh, liberal um, uh, uh, government, right? Yeah. Well, I want, we'll get to um, the future and, and the immediate past. I wanted to stay, if we can, with with Dr. King and mm-hmm. his sense that, you know, even at moments of, uh, of great achievement, um, the seeds of disappointment were also sown. Um, and I think of this in the context of his last book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos Our Community, um, when he opens by talking about um, the momentous occasion on which uh, President Johnson signed the, the Voting Rights Act. Um, and um, King shares his intimation that that legislative act wouldn't solve the problem for which the uh, act was intended. Um, And if we fast forward today, we see um, certainly in the last presidential election, but in almost virtually every election um, since 1965, that one or another party, and in this case, uh, the Republican Party, uh, has been using any means available to disenfranchise voters of color. Um, and that's a point that even the Republican Party's leading election law expert, Benjamin Ginsburg, has affirmed on many occasions. King anticipated that the passage of the act would not solve the problem. Um, and there is a kind of um, poignant clairvoyance in 1967. And where do we go from here? Um and it sort of waves today that, that we, we think of Dr. King as the prophetic messenger of hope, but he also understood the despair and the likelihood of the persistence of deep structural racism. And so I guess I'm wondering, did he absolutely get it right? What, what does that history of voter suppression and disenfranchisement look like to you from that, I guess, 55-year perspective? And thinking Dr. King's own, own anticipation that this is that the, lo- the road ahead was a very long one. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's true. I think on one hand, he's prophetic. On the other hand, uh, there, there's a way that he sort of had almost too much faith in the federal government. Let me just explain what I mean by that. So in Where Do We Go From Here, um, he does make the case, you know, at the beginning of the book, where, you know, there's this, the signing of, 
of the Voting Rights Act, but then there's the Watts Rebellion. And part of what he was trying to get at was, I think, uh, two things. One is that the vote wasn't enough to fix the problem. That you know, we could, you could enfranchise Black people, which should have been done with the 15th Amendment, uh, but it wasn't enough. And that the Watts Rebellion pointed to other issues, issues of poverty, issues of state violence. Um, and the other thing is that he was concerned uh, about the kind of white backlash to the Black freedom movement, uh, especially in response to the urban uprisings. Uh, and, and, and we've seen this, we've seen this in 2020 in terms of the response to the uprising of George Floyd. But let me just go back to, um, to voter suppression because I think when I say that King almost was too, um, you know, had too much faith in the federal government, he did think that the Voting Rights Act would resolve that particular issue. Um, but, you know, I think that he would have been somewhat surprised, maybe not, I don't know, that voter suppression and the outright um, uh, de-democratization, not just in the South, but across the country, starts to take place in the 70s, like soon after he dies. I mean, you have white, Southern elected officials who are using the allegations of voter fraud uh, in the 70s as a pretext to prosecute, intimidate Black organizations and voter registration groups. Um, Alabama has these significant cases in 79. Uh, you know, Jeff Sessions, of course, is involved in some of the ones in the 80s. Je uh, Jesse Helms is mo you know, most famously in 1990, mails out these postcards to 125,000 Black voters. Uh, threatening them with jail sentences if they went to the polls. That's 1990. I mean, you have the series of church burnings in the 1980s. The FBI is investigating what they, what they investigate. They investigate uh, ministers who are involved in voter registration campaigns. Um, so there's lots of examples and some really striking historical examples that we never talk about. Like, um, you know, a lot of people are talking about the Wilmington massacre of 1898, but in 1981, uh, Eddie Carthen was elected mayor of, of Chula, Mississippi, uh, first black mayor. And soon, within weeks of being in office, he's arrested by the police on some made up charges and taken out of office. I mean, just straight up sort of stripping him of, of any, of, of stripping the voters uh, of their candidate, Michigan, right now, you know, Michigan is a really interesting place where um, the the whole recent uh, case around the, 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 the poisoning of Flint River and the indictments of, of Rick Snyder and others points to the fact that that state um, had disenfranchised black voters across the state through the use of emergency financial managers and things like that. And, you know, when, when Trump was elected, the the GOP run state secretary of state secretary of state basically threw out forty eight thousand votes from Detroit in two thousand sixteen and, and Trump won Michigan by ten thousand so voter so voter suppression I think is is so important and just the stripping of democracy is so important and I think that King right now may not have been surprised but. Uh, it shows a complete and utter failure of the federal government to actually protect people's uh, democratic rights, you know. So in light of that, I wonder what you hear when you hear the 
expression, rule of law. And when you hear people say, you know, what's so striking about this period is that there's been an assault upon the rule of law. Um, we've talked about state-sponsored voter suppression. Right. Uh, we've talked about theft of votes. On the other hand, we've talked about, you mentioned the imminent indi- or the indictment, or imminent indictment, I can't remember, of um, a former governor of the state of Michigan for his negligence in, in, in Flint. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, especially in light of those kind of dual commitments of Dr. King to to manifesting hope and to continuing the struggle, what you hear when right. you hear that expression. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the, the rule of law is is this baton that's that's used in so many different ways. And on the one hand, it evokes uh, police power. You know, um, Trump adopts the law and order discourse of Reagan, of Nixon, um, and that is about suppressing dissent. Um, On the other hand, the Democrats and those who are pushing for impeachment are like, what about the rule of law? That the president's not above the law. Um, And here again, it's the prosecution of those who are supposed to be um, untouchable, uh, like a Rick Schneider, like a Donald Trump. Um, And now then, then there's the rest of us who kind of watch the spectacle. And what do we actually see? Uh, what we see is that for all the rhetoric around the application of law evenly and equally, it just never happens. It just doesn't happen. I mean, I was thinking about the rule of law watching um, the assault on the Capitol um, and thinking to myself, That's, that looks like Charlottesville where the police are watching, like literally watching in Charlottesville, um, a, a white guy shoot a black person in the foot and, don't, and they don't do anything about it. They're watching all these people invade the Capitol building. And, and look, I, I'm, the, I'm the first one to say that the police who tried to stand in the way and who were injured and fought back, that they, they did the best they could do. But ultimately, now people now the FBI is scrambling to try to figure out who did what after these people planned the insurrection, um, bragged about it, posted stuff online. So that to me is evidence that the rule of law is not something that necessarily works uh, on behalf of a robust democracy. It should, but it's not applied the same way. And at some point, I know we'll probably talk about it, um, there's a there's a sort of third dimension of the ro- rule of law, and that is the way in which um, even the dissent that we don't like can open up the pathway for you know domestic terrorism legislation that actually could undermine um, civil liberties in ways that I think could be blowback. So you know we. It would be great if we could really have an honest discussion about the rule of law, number one, and two, if we can have a like a national civics lesson about how the law works. And three, if we can be reminded of what's happening with the Supreme Court now that it is um, a machine for the the for the, the current um, regime that's in power now, at least for the next few few hours. Right. I mean, I guess the question is, you know, as you talk about the uh, very uneven application of the rule of law, um, there's a strong 
implication that you know it's it's really about the system. It's not about mm-hmm. the current office holder. Um, you know, when you talk about you know uh, uh, police officers standing by and watching here and there, and they've done that presumably under Democratic and Republican regimes. Right. What's the sort of underlying analysis that um, informs your assumption about the uneven application of the rule of law? What 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 is going on that, in your mind, um, obliterates the distinction between Democrat and Republican, and and sort of points towards the deeper structure? Uh, how would you give voice to that? Race, class, and gender. <laughs> so you know. And, no, no matter who's in power, um, racism and class um, and gender uh, structure power. And so the, the, not just the application, but even the, the design of our constitutional system is based on this idea that some people are, are, have more access, more power, are more uh, protected than others that there's some categories of people that are just not protected. We see this in terms of immigration policy. Uh, we see it um, certainly in terms of uh, police authority and police power. Uh, we saw it definitely in um, the Roman Detention Center in Georgia, where all these uh, immigrant women were sterilized um, with no protections. You know, um, the, the most vulnerable are those who don't have the protection of the law or are subject to laws that target them. In other words, it's not simply the absence of law, but it's also the presence of of what we call the rule of law that um, allows for, I'm gonna give two examples, um, allows for certain uh, regions of the country, for example, to have more power than others uh, through the electoral college through the way we do elections um, on the one hand, and then allow other people to not have protection of the law, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants, for example. Um, and then you have um, uh, a kind of deep inequality in terms of class, in terms of the, the way certain communities are vulnerable, vulnerable to uh, environmental hazards, for example with no law protecting them. Um, people who, are, who are, are subject to unequal schools and education. Still, you know, we had a Brown versus Board of Education decision, which did not and could not address the kinds of class-based inequalities that are also based on race as well, and just don't address those things. And why? Because we have a legal st- structure in place that finances education uh, through um, property taxes. We have a legal structure in place that values home, values property uh, through all kinds of means that are actually legal, you know? Um, Legal in terms of home ratings, legal, despite the fact we have, one of the things that King fought so hard for was the Housing Act of 1968, which still did not resolve the problem we dealt with um, what was legal. That is the legal application of finance uh, capital, which allowed for subprime mortgages. Uh, the, the legal 
uh, stripping under Bill Clinton and the Republicans uh, in the 1990s of the Glass-Steagall Act, which allowed for the, 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 the sort of the collapse of banks that are finance banks versus those who are savings banks to basically spend our money or to gamble our money. These things are all done within the framework of legality. So I think that if there's an analysis, we've got to figure out how to understand the underlying structures that reproduce inequality uh, around race, gender, and class, sexual sexuality, address those things, and, and think about a legal regime that could protect everyone, you know, all protected categories, to understand the vulnerabilities of certain groups and others. You know, in thinking of sort of that deep structure and the, the Sisyphean nature of the, of the struggle, um, I wonder about the power and efficacy of Dr. King's prophetic voice, a faith-based prophetic voice, which on one hand constantly called out to us to forge coalitions to recognize the inherent humanity in the other uh, that rested on a grassroots interfaith coalition. Um, uh, that that preach the possibility of hope, and on the other, which didn't fail to call out, also in prophetic fashion, um, the complicity of uh, of the majority uh, of the system, um, of his fellow clergymen, as he did in the letter from the Birmingham jail, um, and then again, and where do we go from here? When he talks about the white backlash that awaits the uh, the, the aftermath of of the Voting Rights Act. Um, so on one hand, hope, and, and, and on the other, uh, the imperative to call out injustice. What do you think of that kind of voice today, that, that prophetic right. spirit? Right, right. Well, it is, it is extremely relevant today and has been relevant, um, uh, especially during the summer of 2020, but even at this moment. It's relevant, you know, and in fact, I would argue uh, has been embraced by a number of white anti-racist activists, you know, who have adopted the slogan of silence equals complicity or silence equals betrayal or silence equals death, which goes back to the AIDS campaign. But, you know, King has been say, had been saying this uh, many times in his critique of liberalism. And there are groups like um, Showing Up for Racial Justice called you know, Surge, Southern Crossroads, who have been pushing this idea um, for a long time. But I would say that um, there's another side to this, and that is that while there's a kind of robust anti-racism that recognizes complicity uh, in silence that puts their bodies out there, there's also another sort of trend in anti-racism, uh, which is very different from like, the 70s and 80s, which was really tied to like Marxist organizations and left. And that is this idea, this kind of new age idea of the kind of Robin D'Angelo's white fragility that has no analysis of class and very little understanding of structural racism, but treats racism largely as, as attitude, as, as unconscious bias, as requiring kind of self-work um, to improve oneself and doesn't address Race, racism as ideology, uh, which then obscures the system. And I think King was very clear about this. That you know, it's it's not it's not just bad attitudes, um, but it's housing policies, 
you know, when he went to Chicago and lived in a slum, um, uh, some housing, he was talking about like, this is, this is worse than being called the N-word, right? This condition. And so one of the things that I'm concerned about and, and the other side of King's vision, which needs to come back, and that is an understanding of class. Um, when Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Dio Harris, in the name of King's vision, uh, this, this past year, um, you know, built a poor people's campaign, right? On the anniversary of the poor people's campaign, you know, this is very, very important. They recognize that for a lot of working class white people, um, not just in rural Appalachia, but throughout the country, um, they're, you know, they're not, their privilege is, is, is like in the mind and their privilege is very limited. These are people facing staggering unemployment. These are people who are, who are dealing with the effects of fracking and strip mining on their environment and their water supply. They lack affordable health care. They can barely pay their premiums on health care. They're shadow with student debt. They're suffering from COVID, poverty. In fact, for the first time, I think I was reading um, the, the life expectancy for working class and poor white people has actually actually dropped in terms of age. I mean, so to, to, to begin by saying, well, you know, we're, the, the white privilege, we need to do a white privilege first, and everything else second, then alienates, I think, a community that Reverend Barber and Liz Theo Harris was trying to build uh, unity with. That's not to say that it's easy. And that's not to say, you know, but I think to go back to the events of, of January 6th, um, I've been arguing with, with my students and with colleagues and friends, those people taking over the Capitol were not working class white people. They, they were not. They might've been a handful, but these were elected officials. These were cops, military people. These were small entrepreneurs. These were like the middle class that looked like the second clan middle class. Um, these were people who had some resources. They were not those suffering, the white people suffering right now who haven't worked for like, you know, 10 months, right? So I think King would have understood that. He would have understood that with, with clarity that, you know, um, it's, it's that these are the white folks who, it's not just their silence, but they need to fight for themselves and we need to fight for them right, as he fought for them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. So just as there is an ongoing continuity um, in a system that uh, creates the conditions uh, in which uh, uh, inequality can persist, so too there is a particular moment um, in which we are located. Um, and we are um, historians um, who situate events in specific contexts. And I want to sort of capture um, a little bit more closely that moment, um, which you argue both belongs to a long history and also has mm -hmm. its contextual specificity. And I specifically want to take up with you uh, the relevance of the term fascism to describe what we saw unfolding or the Trump era. Um, as you know, there has been an impassioned debate amongst historians about the relevance and appropriateness of the application of that term fascism uh, to the Trump regime and to the attempted uh, takeover of the Capitol. Um, perhaps most famously, um, this past week's New York Times, Timothy Snyder uh, wrote a long piece called An American Abyss that uh, says if we haven't reached uh, the fascist 
uh, age, we are imminently to do so. Um, a number of other historians, his fellow Yale historian Sam Moyne, has consistently argued um, for all of his bluster and, and ill will, uh, Trump has actually not marshaled the levers of government very effectively in ways that um, might merit the designation fascism. So I'm just wondering, as you offer your own um, interpretive uh, lens to the current situation, um, as you talk about the persistence of inequality um, of race, class, and, and gender, how relevant do you think tr the term fascism is to the current moment? That's a hard question, David. <laughs> that's, um, that's why we bring okay. you here, Robin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, I use the term, and let, let me, let me, let me sort of walk through this because I think it's a, it's a very important uh, uh, question. That is, are we in a fascist moment? Have we ever been in a fascist moment? What is a fascist moment? And here is where I think I, I strongly disagree with 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 the brilliant you know, and thoughtful Sam Moyne on this, but for different reasons. Not because I think Trump succeeded. I think Sam's right that, you know, the, the Trump regime hasn't fully, I would say partly, but hasn't fully been able to use the levers of the state to achieve all of its aims. But partly it has, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, but I also, and where I also disagree is that, you know, the the the, the the argument often is, can we use the analogies of the 1930s Europe to understand the U.S. now? And what I would argue is that we don't need the analogy because um, we have homegrown fascism, uh, that fascism has its own organic uh, roots here in the U.S. And as you know, I've been making the case for a long time that um, based on my reading of Cedric Robinson's work, based on my reading of Du Bois, M.A. Césaire, uh, 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 Oliver Cox, and certainly Hannah Arendt, that fascism has earlier roots in colonial rule. One could say that about the United States. Um, and, and I'm gonna kind of jump back and then move forward to the present. And that is, you know, when you look at whether it's the history of reconstruction, post-reconstruction, uh, what Du Bois calls the counter-revolutionary property, counter property um, this is mob violence. Mob violence mobilized against Black citizens to overturn governments and elections. We saw that happen. We saw it through lynching, white capping. We saw it in Mississippi. We saw it in South Carolina. We certainly saw it in North Carolina. Um, we saw the use of the fascist state to force, you know, ostensibly free Black people into convict labor to provide labor for the state. We saw it in segregation. We saw it in the rise of the second clan who takes all the symbols as early as 1915, many of the symbols and ideologies of what we think of as 1920s and 30s fascism out of Italy and Germany, and you could see it there. Um, if we think of, in fact, Sarah Churchwell actually wrote an article about the American roots of fascism and has some really good ideas about this. Now, having said that, I think that when we look at uh, what did happen in the United States, it's hard to not look at Charlottesville in 2017, uh, to not look at the Michigan State House attack in April of this year, to not look at um, uh, you know the Dylan Roof's murder of nine black wor worshipers, Robert Bowers' 
uh, attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, Patrick Crucius uh, killing 22 people in El Paso, that these were acts of white nationalists, fascists who espouse anti-Semitic and, and racist, xenophobic, great replacement conspiracies, and they're building. These are not just individual one-offs. These are, they reflect movements, um, mob movements. Um, and so at the level of the mob, um, you know, they could trace their roots straight back. They may, they may claim Nazi connections, um, but you also have other connections that the Nazis drew from, from the United States. Um, there's that. But then when you think about the role or the level of, of the state, what did Trump and his people actually achieve? Well, they used the state to mobilize 70 million people behind a slew of lies. Um, to violently suppress anti-racist protests, to remake the federal judiciary, to support a right-wing, anti-woman, anti-worker, anti-earth, racist, pro-corporate agenda. Um, the state promoted white nationalism while you know, smuggling in this ongoing free trade policies while saying America first. It promoted American isolationism, isolationism while also you know, waging foreign wars assassinating foreign leaders um, and actively undermining sovereign, sovereign governments. In other words, the, the fascist state, you know, wasn't fully fascist, but partially fascist and was able to achieve some things um, that, has, that have to be, done, be done, undone. But even when it didn't achieve those things at the policy level, it laid the foundation for what we're about to face. And that is the stuff at the Capitol is nothing compared to what it's going to come down, I think. Um, it may not happen on Inauguration Day, but certainly the year to come, it's going to be rough. What um, do you anticipate? I anticipate more um, violent insurrections as well as individual acts of assassination uh, and, and, and killing. And, these, and again, I, I think it's important to not separate the individual acts from organized uh, uh, white nationalism, anti-Semitism, and, and racial violence. I mean, the, you know, the Proud Boys, um, uh, the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, all those different organizations on the right, I think that they are not only organized, but we already know that they are, they have close alliances, if not uh, actual members, in law enforcement, in the military, you know, the Rise Above movement, the Oath Keepers, Boogaloo Boys, um, and Nazis, and the Klan. The, the separation, the thin blue line between those organizations and a segment of the police uh, is not so thin at all. And, and, I, and you know, it's weird. It's like, um, I don't know, you know, that, remember that movie, um, I think it was called uh, American History X or something like that. I think it's called that. And there was a moment where the Nazis and the Klan are coming together and this one guy is like, you know, wait a second. To the Nazis, like, I, you know, my, my father fought you guys. And I had this kind of epiphany. It's like, wait a second. The same people who are, who are invading the Capitol, we were fighting them in June. It's like some of the same people, not all of them. And the black police officers who have also been under enormous stress and strain have all, all, also fighting them inside the departments. 
So one of the things I'm terrified of is, is not just the way that um, these militias get a pass, but these militias are actually um, promoted, supported tacitly through the structures that are supposed to protect us. And then whenever, whenever any of us say, we need to remake the police, we need to defund the police, we need to create new modes of public safety, don't realize that it's not about getting rid of the police, but about getting rid of the fascists <laughs> in the structure that we call the police. You know, so I just, I'm, I'm terrified about what's gonna happen. So, you know, if when, or to put the pieces together, um, there's this longstanding tradition of white nationalism. Um, there's a longstanding tradition of what you would assert as a kind of homegrown American style fascism. Um, there is um, a, uh, an unprecedented political agitator, the likes of which we have not seen in the form of Donald Trump, right. uh, to sort of uh, provide that kind of combustible energy to deprivatize, as it were, um, people and push them into a much more visible public role, as we saw 12 days ago. I'm curious which role you would ascribe to social media as a force multiplier in purveying the message, uh, um, sharing techniques, um, uh, hatching strategies. And what do we do about that, you know, in a, in a, in a society which reveres the First Amendment, right? Right, right. Uh, as we saw in the conversation over whether Donald uh, Trump should be thrown off of Twitter, um, with civil libertarians saying, you know, hold on, maybe, maybe that's uh, a step too fast taken. Right. So social media. Yeah, I, I, I go back and forth on this because I think social media is a main, um, uh, I won't say culprit, but certainly social media has played a critical role in the speed and the massive, you know, dissemination of all these lies and conspiracies. And of course, I was reminded that lies and conspiracies are not new. They're They've been part of politics, <laughs> certainly American politics. Um, but something but, is new. I mean, something is the, new. Yeah, the Trump, definitely. The Trump variant of lying is is many orders of magnitude greater. No, it's true, it's true. And it's not even just the lies. It's it is um, the question of authority, the authority of knowledge. So um, there's the, the the democratization of of opinion. Uh, that is to say. You know, everyone has a blog, everyone can make a certain kind of claim. No one has to be fact-checked. But the, 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 the power and authority one has in social media allows for a kind of mob violence on social media. The social media could, could check people, could destroy them, could, um, through, you know, various forms of myth, could generate support, can get, you know, because what a lot of people are looking for is confirmation or affirmation for ideas that they already hold. They're not looking for critique. And one of the things that advances a democracy is robust critique. Social media does not allow for that. It allows for all kinds of haters and attacks, but the kind of robust critique that could allow for a deeper dialogue and a, and a, a move toward a kind of synthesis of ideas or transcendence, that space is not there because 
what you're doing is you generate likes and supporters to be able to overwhelm other people with these other things. And then they try to overwhelm you, which, which has nothing to do with fatigue. So that to me is terrifying. And again, the speed by which one can mobilize actual physical violence um, is, is terrifying, you know? And I, you know, we, we, we've inherited this. So what do we do? This is, this is the question. What do we do? I mean, the, the, the internet has no regulatory body to sit over it. Um, we value free speech. Um, we especially value free speech that has that, that element of critique. What do we actually do? Constrain, to yeah. alter, to, uh, to censor, to differentiate. Yeah, I don't know. Because on the one hand, to censor is to under... The censor opens up the, the um, Pandora's box um, because we know who ends up being censored as well. Those who actually have really sharp crit critical positions that make sense. Um, so censorship is not an answer. Um, the fact that these social media uh, platforms are corporate and privately owned is a problem as well. I mean, yes, we can applaud today that Twitter has, uh, you know, suspended Trump's account or, or, um, or any other, you know, fascist. But it's because the corporation has the power to do that. Once they open up that box, they can also silence people who are critical of their own platform. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen. Uh, but to me, this comes back to the question that you posed earlier, and that is how do we understand the rule of law? Um, at what point do we see the, the, the response to incitement, for example, as merely pulling the plug on Twitter and then a pardon, or an actual robust legal inquiry and judicial process that has some consequences, right? And that to me, having, having the consequences of losing Twitter to me is nothing compared to actually having to face um, some kind of consequence, whether it's a jail sentence, whether it's a fine, something. Um, and that's the thing that we're not gonna see. That's the thing that, that doesn't happen all along. Uh, and that's one thing. The second thing is that as long as social media is corporately owned, um, even the most well-meaning people won't have enough control to be able to shape it in a way that's more democratic. So what we need to do is not abolish social media, but figure out a way to make it more democratic and more accountable, not to corporations, but accountable to broad swaths of people who you know, can actually intervene and say, you know what, this is not even true. Um, we also need to be accountable to our students as faculty. We, we, we have to be able to, um, to stand up <laughs> with knowledge, truth, and critique. And what I see also in the university is a kind of um, capitulation, not from everybody, uh, but a certain kind of capitulation saying, well, you know, what, what, what do you feel and what do you think? As, as, like, well, what's your opinion? And then leave it there as if somehow um, the academy is a place 
for people to express equally their opinions to be left alone because this is an expression of, of speech. Sometimes people need to come back and be challenged, critique. We need to be able to critique each other uh, and to come back to that, that culture, uh, which is so essential. It's not to say it's a, the savior, it's not the nirvana, but it's something that we need to be able to move forward. It's interesting because um, observers on both left and right would say the university has ceased to be that place. It's, 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 there's a complete shared critique in that regard, that it's no longer a place where you can challenge and, and be critical and, and defy convention. Um, you know, the university has failed in that regard. Um, but I want to move in this um, last segment of our conversation to something that came up um, uh, in, 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 in your talking about um, uh, in, in, your, in your last set of observations. Um, just thinking about what awaits us, um, uh, particularly uh, in two days when, when Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris are sworn into office. Um, my sense is that um, as you look at the constellation of forces uh, arrayed um, and uh, the longstanding patterns of American political history, um, you're not uh, suffused with great hope that uh, that a different model of the rule of law or a different model of, uh, uh, of uh, critical discourse, or for that matter, a different model of, uh, of structures of governance will emerge. So there's a kind of uh, weariness. Here we go again. We have another Democratic uh, uh, president. You know, people are going to say it'll be different. And, you know, plus ça change, the more changes, the more stay the same. Um, you've also suggested that, uh, that you, you fear... Um, cascading violence uh, in, in coming months and years. And so um, rather than my surmise, why don't you tell me what, what, it, what expectations do you have? What expectations do you think it is reasonable to have? Um, uh, having at long last brought an end to this unprecedented four years of, uh, of, of a mix of, uh, of, of you know, unrestrained entertainment, uh, debasement, vilification, uh, commodification, uh, that's coming to an end. Right. Well, I suppose you could say there's good news and bad news. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll give a mix. And some of the bad news is, like I was saying, um, I think that everyday life in the United States will continue to see the resuscitation of the extreme right, whether it's under the name of Trumpism or something else, uh, and that the threat of violence is going to be imminent. Um, and I think that, you know, we have to remember this because even under Obama, you know, I mean, you have to remember that it was under Obama that you have this resurgence of white um, nationalism, racial violence, anti-Semitism. I mean, it was it was really deep under his his reign. The only difference is Isn't that that classic white backlash, as as King it, called. I, I think it's I think it's classic white backlash. I think King was actually correct was even more correct than the way it's been framed. It's often framed as backlash against Obama's election, but I think it's classic backlash against um, the movement. In other words, the backlash even became more intense, um, not just because of Obama's election but with Black Lives Matter, with Trayvon Martin's death, with the emergency. So it's a backlash against the movement. That's one thing. Um, but I also think that uh, 
we're going to we let our guards down sometime because we've inherited this idea that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the saviors against an individual evil unhinged man when in fact so many of the policies even under Trump were a continuation of policies that we saw under Obama and George W Bush and Clinton and others right so um I do think that it's going to be difficult under the notion that we've been saved to be critical of democratic policies. Uh, it's going to, we're going to see a, a kind of silencing around the kind of abolitionist demands we saw in December of 2020. And we saw that. We, in fact, we saw the silencing of those kinds of more radical demands in order to support the election of Biden and Harris. In other words, people were, were quiet. We were saying, look, don't talk about defund the police. Don't talk about that now because we got to get them elected. It's going to be hard to bring that conversation back. Um, but the other thing I'm most, I would say most afraid of, but extremely afraid of uh, in terms of the next coming months is the way that countering domestic terrorism could be blowback. And I mentioned this before, uh, but you know, in 1947, when Truman was president and put together a panel to look at um, uh, civil rights and look at all this racial violence in America, one of the things, one of the outcomes of that was a more robust criminal justice system that was meant to protect Black lives against racial violence. But what happened was that very system, that very robust criminal justice system did the opposite. It actually expanded the carceral state, expanded policing in inner city communities, and gave the fuel for the Johnson administration to also use the war on poverty in order to fight the war on crime, you know, through expanding police. So what we're going to see is we tend to be the victims of the very counterterrorism operations meant to protect us. So that's my worry. And then finally, there's some good news on the horizon. I mean, I, I have to say, in terms of the things that I'm seeing uh, under Biden-Harris, it's a more progressive agenda than Obama. You know, I mean, we're going to see, yes, same old neoliberal policies to a certain degree, an emphasis on corporate growth. We're going to see that. But we're going to see, you know, an attempt to actually raise the minimum wage at the federal level to $15 an hour. We're going to see some worker protections. We're going to see um, some commitment to a green economy. Uh, it's not perfect, but I think, you know, it's stuff to fight for. And it, um, and what it is to me is a foreboding of the power of social movements to put these things on the agenda. I mean, all that fight over the last few years for these things are coming to fruition. It's not it's not, not going to save us. It's not going to completely undercut uh, inequality, but it's, it's certainly a step forward. And I have to say, it, it makes me happy. It also reminds us that we got to keep fighting because it's the fighting that got us to this place in the first place. And in that regard, maybe a final question, which is um, one of the features of your um, career is that you have been both a scholar and an activist. Um, and I'm wondering how that mix of roles 
changes, if at all, in the transition from the Trump era to this new administration? Um, I think it's I think it's exactly the same, <laughs> which is so. I just like three things. It sound like slogans, so forgive me, but um, always remain vigilant and critical. Um, and I always think about Marx's famous statement from 1844, where he, he talks about like, um, you know, that that you have to always be critical, even when it, even with if the conclusions that you thought you came up with are not right. In other words, you have to be prepared to move in a way that you critique self-critique, and that vigilance and and criticality is just necessary for anyone who's a scholar and an activist, or both. But then I also have this thing, you know, I always say, and I have it taped on my, my thing here, which I say, you know, love, study, struggle. Those are the three, that's my, mon my mantra. Um, just like, you know, King had his triplets of evil. Um, my triplets of struggle are love, always love, always come from place of love, including the people who are threatening your life. You know, like, to, to come at um, uh, some of these folks who are MAGA supporters from a place of love is damn hard, but it means it's this constant struggle to build community. Um, study, meaning that you got to keep looking at things that you may not agree with and study deeply and understand and struggle, which is to say that it's through struggle and participation in struggle that you're able to ask the right questions and know how to study and know how to love. So that's all. I mean, again, it's baby cliche, but it's worked for me so far. <laughs> I can think of no better way to conclude our conversation and, and perhaps no better tribute to Dr. King uh, than to hear you offer those uh, three charges to us. Um, Thank you, Robin Kelly, for joining us on Then and Now. It has been, as always, a really illuminating and, uh, and fascinating time with you. Yes, thank you, David. Um, and thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu, L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. And special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a safe and healthy day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.